Hey, it's me. Hello, we're back. It's our Sunday reading day, and uh, it's our official Sunday reading day because I read yesterday too. This is the end. This is it. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour, maybe a little more. California Haunts Radio. Check us out at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or check out my paranormal group at CaliforniaHaunts.org. Uh, group's great, nonprofit. Go for free and investigate your house. Okay. <laughs> I know this is weird. I'm waiting for my uh, pain pill to kick in because I've got toothaches, the mother of all toothaches today. And uh, it always seems to hit like at four or five in the morning. So I don't sleep. It's just horrible. So I took one about 20 minutes ago. So I'm just waiting for the pill to kick in. But uh, if it doesn't get, sometimes it, sometimes it goes away. But if it doesn't get any better next couple, in the next day. I'm going to have to suck it up and go to the dentist like everybody else. And I hate the dentist. You know when you have heart problems or you're, you're, or you're on heart medication or you like heart feel like I'm on a, I have heart failure. It's miserable because I, I've never had to go through it because it's always gone away. But I'm on a blood thinner, just an aspirin, not, you know, not like any other heavy duty blood thinners like Plavix or anything like that. But they have to take you off the blood thinner so many days before the appointment. And then you go get your teeth work done, and then you stay off of it until you until everything you know gets fixed in your head, <laughs> gets fixed in your jaw, you know, until it heals, and then you get back on. The other issue I have is I have allergies real bad, so I'm a mouth breather. So when I go in and to have somebody have their hand in my mouth, it's just agonizing for me. I I, I end up le- leaping off the chair and all this other thing. So it's really an agonizing event for me if I have to go. So I'm really hoping that. It, it, it closes up or whatever it's doing in the next day or so because I really don't want to go. But anyway, welcome. My, like I said, my name is Charlotte. I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We're um, 35 strong up and down the state. We have branches of this in um, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. And you can check us out at CaliforniaHaunts.org. But the important thing is, this is California Haunts Radio, and we do do Sunday shows here. Occasionally we interview somebody. Uh, most of the time we read a book. We read from a book based on ghosts. And for the past, well, let's see. This is the, this will be the sixth week we've been reading from, the, from John G. Fuller's The Ghost of Flight 401. This is our last day reading this book. We're going to finish it off today. Um, for those that weren't aware of yesterday uh because i didn't read last week so i decided to split it up because there were like the, the, there were two or two and a half hours left on the book so i didn't want to do a full two hours today so i um split it so i read yesterday so there's you know you can go back to number six yesterday this is this, this is this week and final week for the for what i'm going to read today and if i talk a little funny or i move my mouth funny it's because there's just there's just one position where, where the pain shoots all the way to, like from here to here on my lip. <laughs> so it really bugs me. But uh, we're going to be reading. If you're watching this from YouTube, we're always looking for subscribers. So if you would be so kind to subscribe, there's a little guy down there, a little ghost down there with a Sherlock Holmes hat and a magnifying glass. Click on him. There's almost 200. There's, there's more than 200 videos. Well, more than 190 videos on there. For you to look different topics 
so you can check out our, our YouTube site. And then you can be like notified when we have new YouTube stuff coming up. Right now we're broadcasting live at uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And to all my all everybody on Twitter who happen to be watch, happen to be, uh, be watching me read a book, hello. I'm excited. I think I fixed the issues with my headphones. That took some doing yesterday, but I got that done. But anyway, another couple minutes and we'll get going here. The go the 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 end of the Ghost of Flight 401. You know, it just goes to show you that ghosts can haunt any venue. I mean, you know, you always think of a ghost haunting in an old building, Victorian building, or something from you know old old uh, Civil War days or things like that, or like in Europe, castles. You know, different different things. But you never really think of them haunting like modern build. You know, like I'm talking just modern stuff. In this case, a, a jumbo jet. But it was, you know, but it did. It happened. And um, the book is, is, you know, like the last week when we, when we or yeah, yesterday, last week, huh? yesterday when we were reading, you know, we got to the point with this book that um, he was really lo looking at what science was, how science was looking at the paranormal. And he, you know, he had talked about like three or four different scientists and how they felt the paranormal worked and and, and the and the psychic abilities worked and all that, and uh, so he's really looking at everything like a journalist. I'm a journalist, so it's nice. That's why I like this book because he does look at he looks at everything like a journalist, just like I would. And uh, so we're gonna really get into the nuts and bolts of this stuff now. He, he talks about the Ouija board. I don't agree with the Ouija boards, but that's what he's using in here. That's okay. That's his thing. So, you know, people use different things, different strokes, you know. I don't believe in them, but I'm not, you know. I've seen bad things happen with them. So, yeah. But uh, I want to welcome everybody today. Like I said, we're going to start reading from, from, from Anna Maria Manalo's stuff next week. And she's got some great short stories she gave me. And I've already read one, and I just am crazy about it, and I can't wait to get started to read it. In fact, I was hoping to start it today, but like I said, two hours of reading just wasn't appealing to me today. Okay, without further ado, let us continue. We, we stopped mid-chapter yesterday, because we were on here for a little over an hour and 15 minutes. So uh, from according to this, if I read at a decent pace, I've got 58 minutes left. So here we go. How about the beginner's tool, she said. You could get into the act yourself with an Ouija board. I thought about that for a moment, about what I had read concerning the use of it. I also had doubts that I could act as any kind of channel. My psychic abilities were grossly weak. Willing to invest in a Ouija board? Elizabeth asked. I was, but when we went to a department store to get it, I suddenly felt ridiculous. I made an excuse to go to another part of the store while Elizabeth went to get it. When I met her at the store exit, I noticed that the bag didn't cover up the prominent name on the edge of the box. I covered it with a newspaper and smuggled it out of the store. This was all getting a bit thick. But Elizabeth felt right at home with it. Remember, she said, you don't need to be psychic for this to work. At least that's what they say. But I heard some psychics can use it alone. We put our hands on the indicator that was supposed to glide along the letters of the alphabet, prominently printed on the board, along... With, along with a yes or no, and a series of numbers from one to nine, and a zero. 
The indicator was supposed to stop, but the correct letter was reached. I felt foolish. If anybody ever looked in the window and saw us, they'd think we'd flipped out, I said. Elizabeth laughed. I promise I won't tell any of your friends, she said. We had been told that questions should be asked out loud, and then you waited for the indicator to move. The letters were to be read through the round glass opening at the top of the indicator. Since there was no one to write down the letters for us, we turned on a tape recorder. After a minute or so, the indicator did begin moving, very weakly, slowly. There was no question that I was not moving it, that it was neither moving under its own force or Elizabeth's. You're moving it, I said. Swear to God I'm not, she said. I'm certainly not, I told her. The indicator was moving in slow, irregular circles, sliding on the felt tips of its three-inch high legs. Is anybody here on the board? The indi Elizabeth asked. The indicator continued to circle, then very slowly made its way up to the corner where the word yes was printed. As it moved, I studied Elizabeth's fingers. They were resting lightly on the indicator, barely touching it, as mine were. Now, when he talks about the indicator, for people that aren't familiar with the Ouija boards, there's a planchette that comes with them, and they have a, um, and the planchette itself is usually uh, in the shape of a rectangle. And like it, and like it says, it's the, the, there's three legs on the bottom that are on felt, and so you put your, your you put your fingers real softly on the planchette, planchette. <laughs> so like I said, the wrong word, and then that's how it works. I've done. I use, you know, we all try these things when we're kids. You know, I, I tried one too at one, one point. So we continue. You're sure you're not moving it? I asked. Not even the least, she said. The indicator reached the word yes, made three or four small circles around it, and then came to rest clearly over the word. Do you have a message for us? Elizabeth asked. The indicator moved slowly down toward the letters of the alphabet now. It seemed to be gaining speed and strength. Then it began moving with a very positive firmness sweeping over the alphabet and stopping at a series of letters. It was a very eerie feeling. Now it was Elizabeth's turn. You're moving, she said. My fingers are hardly touching, I told her. This was true. The letters were now being run off in a series, one after the other. But the problem was, they made no sense at all. We were calling out the letters on the, ta on the tape recorder, and then played them back. They, and then played them back. They read T-G-R-A-T-W-E-B-Y-S. W, G, R, S, and W. We're not reading you, Elizabeth said. Will you try again? Our instructions were to call out the questions vocally. T, W, A. U, R, V, P, T, M, I, T, N, X, Y, and Y. It made no sense whatsoever. There was no use of even trying to separate the letters. It was total gibberish. We're not going to give up yet, Elizabeth said. Keep going, whoever you are. If the letters were meaningless, the movement of the indicator was still building up strength. It would swirl in a wide circle as if it was generating energy, then move to the letters and stop very clearly and deliberately at each one. T-N-G-R-D-I-O-I-O-I-O. Still nothing discernible. My back was tired and I was ready to quit. Keep going, please, Elizabeth said to the board. Then suddenly, the letters began to say something. T-W-A. Okay, here we go. T-W-A, no repo. And that would be T-W-A-K-N-O-W-R-E-P-O. T-W-A, no repo. We stopped the tape, listened to the letters again, wrote them down, and separated them. T-W-A, no repo. I worked immediately. I, I wondered immediately if this could be a random selection of letters. Julian Huxley has one postulated that if six monkeys sat at six typewriters and banged away at random 
and banging away at random in, until infinity, they would eventually write all the classics of literature in correct order. Our letters could be a complete coincidence. Who is here with us? Elizabeth asked. Spell the last name, please. There was more unintelligible gibberish, which reinforced my theory that the one sequence that did not make sense was a random shot in the dark. Then Elizabeth asked, you mentioned repo. Is that correct? The indicator swept up to yes and stopped. Then it went back to the letters and continued to spell. At each series, we would stop the tape recorder, write down the letters, and try to separate them into the words. G-P-N-E-P-O-T-O-U-N-P-O-S-N-T-N. It was not making sense again. Is this a place? Elizabeth asked. The indicator slid to yes again. On this earth? Elizabeth said. Now the indicator shot to no. Where? I-N-F-U-T-E. I-N-F-I-N-I-T-E. It was getting more interesting. What else can you tell us, Elizabeth asked. TWA-727 Chicago. Then the questions and answers came thick and fast. Are you a TWA crew member? Yes. Are you deceased? Yes. Were you killed in a crash? Yes. No repo. What, what is your name? Repo. What is your first name? Don. Are we talking directly? No. Who are we talking through? TWA. Do you have a message? Yes. Who is the message for? V.N. John. Last name, please. Fuller. I was beginning to feel uncomfortable. All through this, I was watching Elizabeth's hands. Her fingers were still touching the indicator with the lightest of touches. I knew for certain I wasn't moving the indicator. I could constantly feel it pull away from me, so that I had to move my fingers to catch up with it at times. Elizabeth wanted to get on with the questioning. What is the message, she said. To stop worry. Stop worrying about what? Names. In planning the writing of the book, I was constantly worried about the names of the people who had given me so much information. The last thing in the world I wanted was to put anybody in danger with his or her employer. Much of the material had been given to me in confidence. This was a real concern. But how did the inanimate Ouija board know this? Or if it were Repo, how would he know it? And how would he know to come to the board, directly or indirectly? There would have to be a little more, a lot more confirmation for me even to begin to believe this. Is this really Don Repo on the board, I asked? Yes. Spell out your name, please. D-O-N-R-E-P-O. What kind of plane were you on in the crash, I continued. 10-11. This was interesting. I knew that the cabin crews referred to the plane as the L-10-11, and that cockpit crews used only the short form, 10-11. I was determined to bear down hard. What was the plane number of the L-1011 that crashed, I asked. 310. Flight number? 401. All this was correct. I was convinced by this time that neither Elizabeth nor I were consciously moving the indicator, that the instrument was spelling out articulate words that purported, that purported it to be coming from Don Repo and that much of the information was accurate. Just who the TWA crew member was, we would have to explore later. Further, I would have to get information that neither Elizabeth nor I knew anything whatever about. If we were able to rule out our unconscious minds as the motivator of the messages on the board. Right at the moment, I wanted to get as much information as I could, as long as the letters were flowing so freely. Can you name the others in the cockpit crew on the night of the crash, I asked? Bob and Stockstill. What airline? EAL. This was the official designation for Eastern. The crew member names were correct, except that he used Loft's first name and the co-pilot's last. Who was in the jump seat in the cockpit? 
Donna Dale. There was a slight misspelling here, but there was no question of whom he met, and he was correct. It was now time to get down to facts that the entity who identified himself as Reaper would know, but which neither Elizabeth nor I did. At least the information we were getting was clear and correct. How were we getting it? How, how we were getting it was a different matter. It seemed totally absurd that a toy could come up with information that could penetrate a wall be, between the known and the unknown. I was fully aware of how ridiculous this might appear in print and torn about continuing with the device. I recalled the words I had read of Professor Hyslop. The facts must prove that the source of the phenomena is what it claims to be, and this personal identity of the discarnate means that the deceased person shall tell facts of personal knowledge in his earthly life and tell them in such a quantity and with such equality that we should not doubt his existence any more than we would if we received the same incidents over a telegraph wire or through a telephone. In this way alone, we can show that the intelligence involved is outside the medium through which the facts come. We had not reached that point yet by any means, but it was impossible to resist going on. Next chapter. My decision to go ahead with more experiments on the Ouija board was made reluctantly. Whatever ribbing I would get from my friends, and I knew there would be a lot of it, I would have to put up with. The objective was clear. Any information that came across would have to meet Professor Hyslop's rigid, unyielding terms. Facts that were as strong as those that might come over the, tele the telephone or telegraph wires. Facts that could be verified. This would not be easy with the doubts I had. Before Elizabeth and I went ahead, I called New York to talk with Rich Craig and his wife for more details of what could be expected. He re-emphasized that while a great deal of accurate information could come over, a lot of false material could frequently confuse the issue. Therefore, the sorting out process was very important. The static interference, he theorized, could come from entities who wanted to masquerade as legitimate sources and who were very skillful at doing so. The only way to tell which from which would be by constant cross-checking. He also suggested that perhaps Elizabeth might be able to work on work the board alone in view of her marked psychic sensitivity. Regardless of the perils, we went ahead, being careful to close the curtain so that a caller or a passerby wouldn't think we had gone round the bend. In the next session, we asked if the alleged Don Repo, we asked the alleged Don Repo if he was willing to communicate. We got an affirmative answer. After asking him to spell his name as a confirmation, we continued. The indicator moved fast and firmly, sweeping over the letters of the alphabet, then making small circles over the chosen letter or number, then coming to a complete stop. What was the basic cause of the crash, I asked. Nose gear. What were the basic, what were the basic National Transport Safety Board findings? Cat, new, strut, pilot, error. The last part was garbled, but seemed to be on the track. The first answer concerning the nose gear was basically correct, but of course this was information I already knew. And even though I was totally convinced that neither Elizabeth nor I were guiding the indicator, information like this was not acceptable under Hyslop's conditions. I was impressed, however. Can you clarify? Captain never checked PSA second landing. <laughs> All right, I have to spell this out. Pesto elus puel wheel. Okay, that's what it says. <laughs> to wheel. This was also garbled. As if a radio signal were breaking up. Perhaps we were missing some letters, or perhaps we misread some. Whatever the situation was, the message was only partially articulate. Were you clearly seen by crew members and pa passengers when you reappeared on the L-1011s? Some did, some did not. Did you appear before crew members who you knew before the accident? Usually. The words were clear now, without an apparent breakup of the signal. 
Whatever this strange energy force was, I tried to think of some questions that neither Elizabeth nor I knew the answer to. And yet, we could check fully, fairly quickly. Can you give us your wife's name? Sassy. That was a strange name, Sassy. Is that really it, I asked? Maybe it was a nickname. No. What is the correct name? Annis. Spell that again, please. Alice. Somewhere in my research material, I felt sure I had information on Don Rico's family that I had not yet checked over. I spent nearly half an hour digging through it and finally found a newspaper clipping with this information on it. The name was Alice. And I brought it back to Elizabeth. That's pretty good evidence, she said. I know, I never knew this before, I said. But good old Professor Highslop would probably say I, I had noticed it before and forgotten it. Yes, Elizabeth said. But you weren't guiding the indicator, were you? I wasn't, and I told her that. Whether it's strong evidence or not, she said, it indicates that we may be in touch with Don Repo. Let's go on. The news clipping had the names of other relatives of Repo on it, and we decided to check some of those, even though it could not count as heavy evidence in view of the fact that we now consciously could see what the names were. Can you give us the names of one of your daughters? One of your daughters. Donna. That was correct. Donna was herself a flight attendant on Eastern, the clipping noted. Can you give us the first name of one of your sisters? There were four listed. The board spelled out correctly the names of two of them. Marianne. There were two others. And I wanted to get more verification. Can you name the two others, I asked. Without hesitation, the indicator spelled out quickly and firmly. See news clip in your hand. This was startling and unexpected. It began to appear that whatever this energy or intelligence force was, it was alert and perceptive, and also with a sense of humor. Have you any general message for us, Elizabeth asked, to go phone Donna? This message brought up a point that had been bothering me all through the research for the story. I had been feeling that, regardless of whether the story turned out to be legend or fact, that it should be written as an impersonal allegory. I wanted to avoid personalities as much as possible and dig into the larger question of the fragility of life as evidenced by the plane crash and the question of whether we lived after death. It seemed to be shaping up that the book should be a, peril, a, a, serious, a serious philosophic or metaphysical inquiry into these questions, as illustrated by a jet age story that provoked questions that had not yet been scientifically answered. But the incidents on the L-1011s were to serve only as an illustrative springboard. It actually did not matter what airline or airplane or crew was involved. Eastern or Repo or Loft or the others were not involved as personalities. The point to me was that in this modern age, there could be a legend based on fact that might affect our outlook and our thinking to make it less confined and bound up in a straitjacket. If the material of the story appeared to turn out to be real, that would be all the better. It would provoke thought, of it, <clears throat> thought and interest in the big question as to whether we lived on after death. Now, with the response that was alleged to come from Don Repo, I could not avoid getting into a personal story if I were to follow the very clear words. To go phone Donna. I was hesitant in doing this for other reasons. There was no way of telling how the accident had affected her outlook. The same was true of Mrs. Repo. I wanted to disturb them as little as possible. Under ordinary circumstances of journalism, the first thing I would have done was to contact both of them and approach the story from that angle. But it became apparent from the start that this was not ordinary journalism. The nature of the story demanded that it reach out far beyond that, while at the same time maintaining a rational perspective. 
For the first time, I was beginning to get a little awed by the strange messages coming out of the Ouija board. There was a cryptic sense of command in the words. There was no telling what the next letter to come up was. When we expected it to go one way, it would go in another. Most of the time, we would have to wait until we listened to the letters we had called off on the tape recorder to find out what the sequence of the words was. Many questions were in our minds. Why had the first half hour on the board turned up nothing but gibberish? Why had some coherent sentences broken up in the middle? If this actually was a discarnate Don Repo, how did he know when to show up? What method of propulsion moved the indicator, whether it was coherent or incoherent? How did it turn out that he seemed to know our names? We decided to go on. Do you have any messages for Donna, if we should call her? Elizabeth asked. Forget Dad. John to phone her, tell her I am fine, working hard. Any other messages for her? Be good girl. P.S. I love her very much. We felt both of us a strong sense of poignancy. This increased after we asked the next question. Are there any messages for your wife, Alice? Hang on a second. Elizabeth said. She continued to call out the questions vocally. I love her. Forget Don. Tears don't help me to come back. It was hard to concentrate on questions at this point. I was still trying to avoid getting into a personal situation. I felt that what was needed most was, fact, was factual confirmation. I said, for confirmation, Don, name three things you check on a pre-flight walk around. I was surprised to find myself calling out the name Don. I caught myself up short on this because there was still not enough clinical evidence that actual contact was being made. Elizabeth was inclined to accept that idea more than I was. In addition, Oh, sorry. In answer to the pre-flight flight, flight check questions, the answer came. Wheels, visual nose gear, tires. Any other information, I asked? Captain hand, panel lights, near flight engineer. I couldn't quite understand this, but his walk-around answer was in line with fact. I pressed for further technical details. What did pilot do before the crash, I asked. Release controls accidentally. This was also in line. I followed up with a series of questions. Who is here on the board? Don Repo. Can you confirm the name of the pilot at the time? Stockstill. This was correct, because the controls had been turned over to him. Anything else you can tell us? The pilot Everglades friend had more. Hurt for us pilots and Eastern crew in their house. The girls see me in galley. Oven did mice leave the family closet? This message was incoherent. But there were certain statements clearly evident. The most important was the message about being seen in the galley ovens. The reference to pilot Everglades' friend may have concerned the Coast Guard rescuer. The most puzzling and seemingly ridiculous part was the question, did mice leave the family closet? This meant nothing whatever to either Elizabeth and me, and we discarded the idea of trying to make any sense out of it. It was not until later we found out that we were quite wrong in doing so. Nor did the next sequence make any sense to us at the time. It involved a penny that was, be, that was to be looked for, but we couldn't make any sense out of it. The sequence ended up with, to go into wastebasket, penny sit there, boy's room. Again, we were perplexed and baffled. Some of the information seemed so tantalizingly near to be giving sound evidence, and yet it still didn't meet the yardstick high slop had indicated. We even got a message about Don's fondness for beer, but quite suddenly... The tone changed and several answers came out on the board that had nothing to do with the questions we asked. To go to work on story, telephone Donna today. Go back to work, story must be written. You are wasting the whole story to go to, 
the whole story to go to work. So go to typewriter. You seek help. You see, call Donna. Do not use Ouija board anymore today. Get on story. See you tomorrow. Repo goodbye. Elizabeth and I had been at the board for over an hour. We were exhausted. I was interested in the way we had spelled Ouija board and the way he had spelled Ouija board. Neither Elizabeth nor I would spell it that way. This seemed to me to be a fairly strong clue for a cross check on validity. But what troubled me most was the apparent insistence on getting in touch with Donna. It would create a marked shift in the direction of the story, from the impersonal to the personal. I had no idea whether she would be receptive in sharing her information. It would be totally ridiculous for me to say we thought we had been in touch with her father. And yet, the more I thought about it, the more I began to feel that it was necessary to get in touch with both Donna and Mrs. Repo, regardless of the messages that had come across the board. One imp On impulse, I sat down and wrote a letter to Donna. After phoning a friend in Miami to find her address in the phone book, it was a sensitive situation and I didn't quite know how to approach the subject. I finally wrote, Dear Donna Repo, I'm in the process of writing a story on the L-1011 tragedy, which in no way will reflect badly on the flight crew or Eastern Airlines. The underlying theme of the story is very simple, the fragility of life and the importance of life after death. In the background research I've done, I've, of course, come across a tremendous amount of material regarding the reappearances of the flight crew at Flight 401 in the galleys and everywhere on Plane 318, and several others. This material, in turn, bears heavily on the theme. Some of it may be of interest to you. I'd very much like to share with you some of the material I've come across in many months of research, much of it turned up by Elizabeth Manzoni, my research assistant, who has been a cabin attendant for Northwest Airlines for the past seven years. Both of us would like to meet with you and have you as our guest for dinner when we come to Miami within the next few weeks. Elizabeth and I have run across several friends of yours during the research, so we feel almost as if we know you. Thanks in advance for your interest, and very best regards, cordially, John G. Fuller. I sent the letter off. Elizabeth and I tried several more sessions with the Ouija board. The messages were similar to our first attempts, and we and were basically correct and consistent as far as the technical facts of the plane were concerned. The messages also demonstrated Don Repo's reported sense of humor. Everyone I had talked to who knew him emphasized his quality and this quality in his personality. It seemed to have been his dominant characteristic. I was still after more direct information that could be checked out. In one session on the board, I asked, what state were you from before you came to Florida? The letters moved swiftly again. New York, Texas, Kansas, Island, Maine, California, Boston, Atlanta, Georgia. Hard to verify. Please be serious, Don, Elizabeth said. The, in the indicator kept moving. See, St. Louis instead South Carolina with, Lu with Louisiana sometimes. Why do you do this, Don? Elizabeth asked. You're not serious. Fun to gag with you. He must have been referring to the inordinate number of places he had been stationed while in the service. What are the main sections of the plane you appeared in, I asked. Coach, class, galley, oven. What are your reasons for coming back, Don? Elizabeth asked. To play games today. Be serious, Don, Elizabeth continued. What are your reasons for coming back? Don likes to clown around and gag here in spirit. You see, I like to joke around. Whatever was happening, a personality was emerging from the letters on the board. Elizabeth and I both began to feel a real affection for him, confusing as it was. We waited patiently to hear from Don and Repo, but no letter came for over a week. Finally, in one day's mail, my letter came back, stamped, returned to sender, no such number. 
I finally was able to locate, locate Mrs. Repo's address and sent the letter to Donna in care of Mrs. Repo. Again, there was a wait, but four days after the letter was sent, I received a phone call. It was from Donna Repo calling from Miami. I was relieved to find that she was cordial and receptive. I've got to tell you something strange, she said. Your letter arrived at my mother's house, and she brought it over to me. She mentioned that your name seemed familiar, but couldn't recall where she had heard it. I opened the letter and read it later, after she had left. Frankly, I didn't want to talk about the story. I had heard about the reports many times, but the flight crews didn't want to talk to me directly about it. I guess they felt embarrassed. I neither believed nor disbelieved the stories. I guess I couldn't believe them unless it happened to me. Anyway, I was about to throw your letter away when I got a phone call from my mother. She had gone home, trying to think of where she had seen your name before. Then she remembered, just a few days before your letter arrived, a friend of hers brought her a copy of a book. The friend said that the book was very interesting and inspiring. It turned out to be one of your books, Arago, Surgeon of the Rusty Knife. My mother read it and found it to be just what her friend said it was. It was only when she got home after delivering your letter to me that she looked at the book cover and she realized that the name on the outside of the envelope was yours. She called me and said that she was very interested in talking with you. She also said that she would like to share with you some of the experiences she's had since the time of the accident. They are very strange, so we'd be glad to take you up on your invitation. I was pleased and relieved, even though it would move the story from impersonal to personal. Elizabeth was in the process of tracking down more interviews, but when I saw her later, she was delighted. Do you see some kind of cosmic signal here, she asked me. Her tone was mischievous. How do you mean, I said. If your letter arrived the first time, it would have been thrown away. That's ridiculous, I said. Isn't that what Donna Repo told you? Well, perhaps. You are impossible, Elizabeth said. If the letter had arrived before Mrs. Repo had read the book, Donna would have thrown the letter away. What does it take to convince you? Don't you think this is an important story? I do if it checks out, I said. Very important. But it is checking out. How much evidence do you need? You seem to be resisting everything that falls into your lap. Maybe that's why I, re I resisted, I said. As I said before, it seems... It, it seems too fort fortuitous. You've got to have more faith, she said. All right, she said. Let's try the board right now. If it's running true to form, Don must know about this. Let's see what he has to say. We got the board out. Elizabeth asked the usual question. Are you here, Don? Yes. So you know what happened today. Call from Donna. How did you feel about it? Elated, her father. Okay, elated, her father. Be nice to baby girl. For the visit, Mrs. I know. For the visit, okay. For the visit, Mrs. No, I love them. What are we planning to do when we meet them? I asked. My skeptic, my skepticism, which was benevolent, my skepticism, which is benevolent, but still present, was beginning to fade. The answer came: take to dinner. How did you know that, Don? I asked the board. See, Don is smart. I see you still have your sense of humor. I said. Yes, Mrs. Make her just happy. Say hi from Don. The dinner was set up for Sunday, March 7th, 1976, at the Marriott Hotel near the Miami International Airport. I looked forward to it with some apprehension. The shift from the theoretical to the deeply personal was a major one. I felt very reluctant to tell Ellis, Repo, and Donna about the strange messages we had received on the board, which had started out as almost a clinical experiment. Now we were going to be dealing with very real human beings and unknown human equation. And yet, the subject went beyond individual per personalities. It dealt with a question that all of mankind had to face, whether it wanted to or not. Don Repo was emerging 
from a shadow to a reality. He was also becoming a good, a very real symbol. Whatever was to come of our meeting, I knew that I would respect the feelings of the repos and would follow their wishes in every way. Donna Repo was tall, slim, attractive, to the point of being beautiful. Her mother was gracious, affable, and youthful. From almost the moment they came into the hotel room, there was none of the strain that I had anticipated. Alice Repo was calm and assured. She seemed ad admirably able to cope with her grief. Her immediate reaction to the long series of reports about her husband appearing on the Elton Elevens was that she would by no means rule them out. She spoke of Don with deep and simple affection. They had obviously been very close. It was also obvious that Donna adored her father. Neither was more, neither was more sentimental about him. Their memories were fresh and ventilated, sifted, sifted by the three years that had gone by since the crash, which has lifted the veil of mourning without destroying the sharpness of recollection. Alice Repo shaped the personality of Don vividly. He truly enjoyed every day he lived, she said. He loved the outdoors and had a deep attachment for birds. His life was marked by action. He never wished to do things. He did them. When an impulse would strike him and he had several days of spare time, he would whisk Alice and the children off to Canada for a camping trip. When he was flying military charters to Germany, he insisted that Alice and the children come back there on vacation with him. When this was impossible, he would bring back generous gifts from, from abroad to excuse me, both his family and friends. He was outgoing and generous to a fault. At one time, he brought back a full set of Michelin tires for his son, John, hauling them personally through the various airport changes. His most marked characteristic was his outgoing sense of humor. He was never without a joke or a gag. They were his trademark. He was well-liked, popular, handsome, but he never hung his fiddle on the door. Excuse, excuse me. His ubulance and love of life carried over within the home. Donna Repo revealed that she was perplexed and baffled by the constant reports of his reappearance. Her initial reaction was one of skepticism, but the persistence of the reports made her wonder. She knew that other flight crew members made it a point not to talk to her about the incidents out of consideration for her. In one way, this was bothersome. She would rather talk about it freely to try to get at the bottom of the story. She still did not know what to make of it. She stated that she neither believed nor disbelieved, and she was keeping a full open mind. She felt her colleagues were being overprotective. There were other things that had been happening as far as Alice Repo was concerned. She had mentioned them only to close friends or family. The first incident happened just one, about one year after the crash of the Flight 401. She received a phone call from Don, who had just arrived back from a trip. He always made it a point to call Alice on his return, and this was no exception. He asked if he could bring anything home from the store, but Alice had told him that there was nothing at the time. They hung up, but within seconds the phone rang again. It was a strange male voice. It announced one thing. Her husband Don had just been killed in an air crash. Alice was shocked at first, and then realized that Don could not even have reached his car from the airport phone. She dismissed it as a macabre joke of the most tasteless sort and could not understand how anyone could be so depraved as to do anything like that. When Don arrived within the next half hour, she told him about it. Neither of them could figure out why anyone would tell such an outrageous story. They shrugged it off and forgot about it. Just about a month before the Flight 401 tragedy, Don came home from a trip in a reflective mood. He told her that he just couldn't wait to get home from the trip, that he wanted to tell her how much she meant to him and how much he loved her. 
He was so much more intense than usual, Alice recalled. I thought about it quite a while. I finally said to my best friend, I'm scared, Elise. Elsie, the things Don told me, it's almost like he was trying to tell me more than he should have. As the holiday season of 72 arrived, the thoughts and doubts left Alice's mind. But on the morning of Don's trip on Flight 401, the phone rang and Alice answered it. It was crew scheduling with the routine call for the assignment. Alice put the phone down and went out to get Don, who was in the garage. As she walked toward the garage, a sudden impression struck her. It was the identical voice that had spoken to her with the macabre joke almost a year before. She shuddered, but she called Don to the phone and tried to put it out of her mind. Don finished his conversation on the phone. Alice said nothing about her reaction to the voice. Don said, what do you think? Should I go out on this trip? I don't have to because it's not my it's not my regular one. But if I take it, I'll be back home for New Year's Eve. What do you think? As usual, Alice left the decision up to Don. They had no special plans for the holiday, so it would not matter either way. Don decided to take it. It was a turnaround, so he would be home that same night. After he left for the trip, Alice could not get the voice out of her mind. Don left about noon that day for the trip up to New York, and at about 8 p.m., December 29th, he called Alice from Kennedy in New York. He was cheerful and buoyant. It looked as if Flight 401 would depart on time, and he'd be home shortly after midnight. He was glad he had taken the trip because they would be free for the holidays. This was the last Alice talked to Don before the tragedy took place. She retired early that evening and was asleep until 4 a.m. the next morning. As she was sleeping, their son John was watching the late news on television, home from the University of Florida in Tallahassee on vacation. The moment the news came over, he rushed to the phone and called Donna at her apartment. She came over immediately. Oops, sorry. She called the hospital. And the information given was that Don was alive and that it looked as if the only injury was a broken leg. They woke Alice to tell her about it and rushed to the hospital. It was clear when they got there that the injuries were considerably worse than just a broken leg. But Don was a fighter. After a long surgery, he was still conscious. When Alice entered the room, he recognized her immediately and squeezed her hand. A priest arrived and Don called him by name. Characteristically, he rebelled against the treatment. The hospital routine. He was annoyed by the tubes in his nose and wanted Alice to remove them. Don loved birds, Alice Repo told Elizabeth and me as we sat in the hotel room. We had a bird feeder in our yard. He'd have coffee and watch the birds feed. The day Don died, we came home from the hospital at about 8.30 in the morning. My mother was in the kitchen. She called to me and said, Alice, come here and see this. I went out to the kitchen and looked out on the screen patio. There were at least 30 birds out there flying back and forth. Usually, I keep the screen door slightly open for our dogs to come in and out. And once in a great while, a single bird or maybe two will fly in there. When they do, I keep a broom there so I can guide them out. I might have seen one or two birds there before, but this was strange. I wondered what to do because... They never before had found their way out without the help of the broom. But on this day, they suddenly swept out through the small crack in the door the way they came in, all 30 or so of them. No one had to guide them out. I said to myself, well, they all just came to say goodbye to Don. I just knew it because he loved birds so. I know that when grief strikes you, you can make all kinds of interpretations about things that could just be your imagination. But even today, I'm convinced this was a kind sign that Don was going to leave us. As we talked at length that afternoon in Miami, it became obvious that neither Donna nor Alice Repo were prone to exaggeration or instability. Their devotion to Don was intense, but calm. 
They recalled that they were not allowed to see him in the last hours before he died. Just 31 hours after the crash, he succumbed. At the funeral, the casket was closed. The grief and the shock were almost unbearable for Alice. The family was close-knit, was close-knit, comforted her, surrounded her with love. There were several there were several things that followed during the long period of bereavement, both puzzling and vividly real. Alice recalled that one night she woke up with an overpowering odor of Vitalis on the pillow next to her. Dawn had always used Vitalis. But there had been none in the house for over a year when this happened. The pillows were new and clean, but the odor was so strong that it woke her up. She turned the pillow over in the hope it would go away. The memory was too poignant, but it did not disappear until well, until well into the next day. On another night, sometime after that, she woke up and felt Don beside her in the bed. It was not a dream. She reached over and distinctly felt his hand for a long time. His wedding ring had a clearly discernible dent in it. Carefully, her hand slipped to the ring finger. The ring was there. She slid her fingers around the surface. The dent was there. The incident did not startle her. She felt nothing but peace and love. There were other signs later that took to, that, that took to be indications that Dom was somehow trying to communicate with her. A bird would appear at the window during some of her moments of grief, as if it were trying to soothe her sorrow. A nun brought her a little gift. When she opened it, it turned out to be a ceramic white dove, one of Dom's favorite birds. The nun mentioned that she had no idea as to why she had picked it out. She had no idea of Don's fondness for, for the bird. It was getting near dinner time. Outside the windows of the hotel room, the lights were turned out in the courtyard. Elizabeth and I were afraid of tiring Alice and Donna with our questions, but she assured us that there was no strain. She and Donna both had learned to cope with their grief. We shared with them some of the reports that we had learned. They were interested and told of Don's interest in and love for the airplanes he flew. They were convinced that if the reports were true, Don would, be, Don would very, be very likely to be around just to make sure the planes were running right. I didn't quite know how to bring up some of the information we had come across in our clinical experiments on the Ouija board. If anyone had told me he had been in touch with a deceased friend or relative of mine via this device, I should have been convinced that he had departed from the senses. Yet, we did have some puzzling information that, if it turned out to be verified, would create some extremely strong evidence of validity. I cautiously brought up one of the messages that had been so puzzling when it was spelled out on the board, without revealing the bizarre way Elizabeth and I had picked it up. Tell me, I said to Alice Repo, this might seem like a crazy question to you, but did you ever have any trouble with mice in what you call your family closet? Both Donna and Alice Repo looked startled. How did you know about that? Alice asked. I know it seems a silly question, I said. It's not all that silly, Alice said. Just a couple of months ago, some mice built a nest in the attic above what we call our family room. We couldn't get rid of it. I mean, we couldn't get rid of them for quite some time. Finally, my son John set a bunch of traps. Actually, it wasn't the family closet. It was the family room. And the only way you could get through to the attic was through the family, was through the family room closet. But how did you even hear about that? I think Elizabeth and I were as startled as the repos. A weird piece of nonsense was suddenly making sense. I told Alice that I'd tell her after I asked her another crazy question. She laughed and said she'd be glad to answer it. Can you tell me anything about this? I said. I still felt foolish, but I was encouraged by the results of the first question. Did Don have anything to do with some pennies in a wastebasket in your boys' room? This is amazing, Alice said. You've got to tell me where you learn these things. Don used to collect Indian head pennies. There was a small barrel full of them in my son's room. 
But who told you about this? I'm curious. I finally confessed that Elizabeth and I had been experimenting very cautiously with the Ouija board and that we had received these two cryptic messages, among others. I haven't played with one of those since I was a child, Ellis said. Did you actually get that information that, that way? We assured her that we did, among many other things. I finally showed her a transcript of the material we had collected during our weeks of experimentation. Both Alice and Donna were fascinated. They agreed that the answers, the quips, the gags were just like Don. I asked her about the name Sassy, but Alice could not associate that with anything. They asked if we had brought the board with us. We had, but it was down in the car. I was hesitant. I was afraid that it might not work in front of them and that some of the interference and gibberish might come through, which would make the process senseless. However, I went down in the car and brought the board back up. Both Donna and Alice were in a calm and experimental frame of mind, and I assured myself of that before we started. We jointly decided to make an objective evidential test. Alex suggested that Elizabeth and I ask the board the name of a beer that Don liked. We would also ask the board to identify who was, who was alleged to be communicating by name and also to spell out Alice's name as confirmation. We were all a little tense as Elizabeth and I sat down at the board. We were all a little tired and hungry, too. Elizabeth asked, Don, are you here? If you are, will you spell your name, please? The indicator moved swiftly to spell out Don. I was relieved. At least we seemed to be getting results at the start. Don, who is here with us now? Without hesitation, the letter spelled out Alice. What's your favorite beer, Don? Elizabeth asked. Budweiser, Coors. Go to dinner, she knows. Alice and Donna laughed. It sounds just like Don, Alice said, but it's not the right brand. We asked if there was any special message in the letter spelled, Alice is here, love her. Just you, Alice, her wife love. To try to eliminate error, I asked Alice if she would try the board with Elizabeth. She did so, and the indicator still moved swiftly. We asked her to look away from the board so that she wouldn't influence the movement and ask questions where Elizabeth would not know the answers. She agreed, and the board spelled out the answer to several personal questions correctly. Donna was now stunned with the response. I can't, I can't stay skeptical after this, she said. I'm really convinced. Then she asked the board, Dad, did you know I was recently married? Yes, I know. Work hard. Love, Alice. To just you, wife, love you. Donna asked if she could work the board with her mother, and she replaced Elizabeth. The indicator moved slowly at first, gaining speed as Donna got used to the feel of it. The first letters were gibberish again. I love you. I love you. You more, Alice. I love you, Donna. Donna Lynn, too. You're married. Donna Lynn was Donna's formal name, which she rarely used. Have you any message for my sister, Donna asked? How are you, my special daughter? Kiss Allison for me, dear Alice. I love you. Funny how it's spelled Allison, Donna said. That's the way we spelled it. Alice was interested in further evidential checks. Don, is there any other message? Alice Norco Repo, I love you. Never forget. Please, I love you. Good night. There were tears in Alice's eyes, but she was calm. Norco, that's my maiden name, she said. It's a Czechoslovakian name. There's no question in my mind now. Do you feel uneasy about the communication, I asked? Not in the least, Alice said. In fact, I feel comfort. We went to dinner at the restaurant at the top of the hotel. Miami International Airport could be seen off in the distance. We were all in a reflective state. Donna particularly was awed and shocked. She said she had completely lost her reservations about the validity of the communications. We emphasized that it was not always dependable, that false messages and interference would often come through. 
that only material that could be verified could be considered valid. I told them about my doubts and reservations, but that I was losing a lot of them as a result. After dinner, we said goodbye to the repos. We felt that we had come to know them intimately in a very short time. We also felt that we knew Don Repo with his, with his puckish sense of humor and deep affection for his wife and family. As we said goodbye, Alice Repo said, There's one thing, though, that never came through. He never told you the beer that he likes to drink. When we got back to the hotel room, we couldn't resist trying to pick up that information. Don was there, ready to talk, as he always was, as he always seemed to be. We asked him to identify the brown, and he and he and the indicator spelled Meisterbrow. Neither of us had ever heard of such a brown. Later, we phoned Alice Repo. At first, she said no, that wasn't the particular brown she had in mind. Then she asked, asked us to hold on a minute. When she came back to the phone, she said she was checking some souvenir beer mugs Don, Don had brought back from Germany. Her favorite, his favorite beer there, she now recalled, was spelled out on the mugs, Martin's Brow. We all laughed and agreed that might be close enough. Elizabeth and I went down to the courtyard for a nightcap. The day had been so full and strange. The whole story was so incredible, so hard to assimilate. I still found myself alternating between believing and not believing. I wasn't even sure whether we had met Professor Hyslop's demands for rigid confirmation that we had been in touch with Don Repo, wherever he was. I was sure of one thing. We had come very close to meeting the demands. Elizabeth felt more confident that we had met them than I did. Later, I asked her to sum up her feelings resulting from all the interviews and research briefly. She did so. One, the pilots involved are down-to-earth solid citizens. I've been flying with different pilots on Northwest for seven years, and practically all of them run true to form. They are excellent observers, and not the least inclined to exaggerate. Two, there are too many people involved in this story. They all check out. Three, the descriptions given us from widely separated sources are all similar, and in many cases identical. Most of the parties involved did not know each other, so there was no chance of collusion. Why did three flight crew members, number four, why did three flight crew members and two separate times, unknown to each other, go to all the trouble to exercise the plane? Five, why have there been no reports of the apparitions since these exorcisms? Six, Groups of people, including passengers, claim to have seen the reappearances. They could not all have been hallucinating. 7. Why, why do some flight crews try to avoid flying plane number 318, while many others, let's see my dictionary popped up, <laughs> try to put in a line bid on the L-1011s because they think repos there to help? 8. Why does the same situation exist as far as the flight attendants are concerned in regard to the lower galley? 9. What about the Mexico City incident? Ten. Why would all the crew members we interviewed make this story up? It's not that good of a joke. Elizabeth was right. It wasn't that good a joke. And something seemingly trivial happened a few weeks after we had seen Donna and Alice Repo that was more startling than a joke because it seemed to put a punctuation mark to the end of the strange telegram-like messages we had been receiving on the Ouija board. Alice Repo phoned one night to say she had finally recalled what the word sassy meant. It completely slipped her mind when we had been talking with her in Miami. It seems that Don at one time had been joking with her about putting on a little weight. She had made a big point about affectionately calling her his... Oh, he had made a point about affectionately calling her his fat and sassy love. He particularly had em emphasized the sassy part of it. Why it had slipped her mind when I had first mentioned it to her, she didn't know. It was strange how a bit of... Information like this could affect my thinking, but it did. 
Trivial as the word and the incident were, it seemed to reflect without question that the message carrying the word sassy could never have been a part of either Elizabeth's or my unconscious mind. It was too unique a word to be coincidence. The pennies in the wastebasket and the mice in the closet were out of the same nature. Together, these three pieces of evidence, meaningless when we first received them, finally convinced me that we had met the rigid demands set down by Professor Heisler. It was as if we received the same incidents over a telegraph wire or through a telephone. But whatever the story was, whatever anyone wanted to believe or disbelieve, it was deeply absorbing to me, with definite intimations of an immortality hidden in it, and actually a heartbreaking story. Don Repo seems to be at rest and at ease. The Eastern 1011 Whisperliners continue to be technically among the best in the air. In spite of the corporate fears of Eastern about its public relations image, the fears are groundless. Don Repo and Bob Loft, if they have reappeared so many times as reported, are benevolent. My voice, that are benevolent ghosts, as helpful as extra crew members. I can't help feeling that somewhere Don Repo, with his delightful sense of humor, is laughing with us, not at us. That he may even be showing us that there is a lot more to our existence than materialistic science would like us to believe, and that he will turn into a gentle and benign legend that will live benevolent. That will live blah, that will live dang it, that will live benevolently, that will benevolently, I can't believe it, that will benevolently haunt, there we go, airways for a long time to come. And that's it, the end of the book. One thing I wanted to talk, to add was that yesterday when we were reading, let me close this off, there we go, yesterday when we were reading, um, when they took the trip out to the Everglades on, on, on the airboat and they were talking about the sawgrass and, and the islands that, that looked like islands, but weren't islands. I can kind of verify for that. Our Sacramento river over here. Um, when we used to boat on the Sacramento river, me and my, and my family and I, we were down to the North side of the river, which we never really went to. We always went South and then we decided this day to go, you know, to the North side of the river. And uh, not north side, but you know, north, north, uh, north up the river. And um, I remember <laughs> there were these islands with trees on them. And uh, my father said, "Well, let's tie off to one of those." And you know, so we get up there, and he goes to pull pull the boat in. And I didn't, I don't swim very well, but my mother sw- swims a lot better than I do. So. Um, she decides that she's going to jump off the, the bow of the boat because, the, you know, the islands look, the ground on the islands look really tall, you know, really high enough for her to do this. And she was going to, you know, jump off the front end of the boat and tie us off. She jumps off and she sank right down because, like in the Everglades, all the trees were, were just floating. These were floating islands. There was, like, no substance underneath. So um, I was thinking about that yesterday as I read you know, about them going through the Everglades and looking at the marshlands in, in the Everglades and knowing that if they stepped off anywhere, they were going to go straight down like like four or five feet of water because that's what happened to us. So, yeah. Anyway, um, thank you. This book was great. It took us six weeks to get through it. And uh, I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Like I said, the reason why I like this book so much is because he does, you know, look at the scientific part of it. You know, he looks like like, Per, per, like, like Professor Hyslop, right? He looks at that and he analyzes all that and he adds that in, into his way of thinking. So I've always liked this book. And like I said, you know, 
I've had it since I was a kid. And for what it's worth, Eastern Airlines went bankrupt at some point and closed down. But the L-1011 didn't last, didn't last as long as they thought it was going to last. And uh, the like, if you guys live in, around Arizona, you can see the see actual L-1011s in that airplane graveyard that's out there in Arizona. I've seen it. So it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting read. Anyway, next week we are going to um, be reading from Anna Maria Mont. God, what is going on? It's this tooth. This tooth is driving me insane. Anna Maria, Anna Maria's book. We're just not Manello. Jeez. So we're going to be reading from her book next, or not? Well, from an excerpt from her books next week, and they're all true ghost stories that she's put together over the years in her travels. And uh, so it's going to be interesting. And each one of these short stories are like 40 pages. So it's going to be, you know, probably split it up like two, like two weekends worth of reading. But that's what we're going to be doing next week. We're going to start that next Sunday at 6 p.m. A little change of schedule for the show this week. Um, the gentleman that was supposed to be on tomorrow, his wife had surgery, had, had brain surgery done um, yesterday. And so he uh, he's not sure if he's going to make it tomorrow. He might make it Tuesday. So we're going to have some treat. Coca-Cola guy Larry Jorgensen's coming on tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. We love we love Coca-Cola guy. He's, he's one of our favorite guests. He's one of the first guests we had on the show, you know, in this format. So he's going to be on to give us some updates on what he's uh, gathered on the history of Coca-Cola and stuff. So that's going to be fun. So I'll, so tomorrow at 6.30, that's who's going to be here. And then uh, Tuesday, uh, hopefully the guest that was supposed to be on will be on. And if not, Karen Clark, Karen Clark and I are going to be on here talking about Karen's trip to Florida. She spent a month in Florida and she visited several haunted locations. So she's got some info for that. So she's going to be on with me Tuesday if, if, if we don't have a guest for Tuesday. And then Wednesday, Crystal Palmer Ray is going to be here. She's going to be talking about the realm of angels and how you can contact it, contact the sea angels. We're not going to do a show Thursday, but we've got an old friend coming on. When I was on Blog Talk Radio, we had Ron Moorhead, who um, recorded the voice of Sasquatch up in the Angels Camp area. And uh, he's agreed to come on Friday. So he'll be on Friday at, six, at, at 6.30, the usual time, to share those, um, the, the, those audio cuts with us and talk about updates to his research. So he's going to be on with us on Friday. Anyway, I want to thank you guys. And again, you know, I usually don't do this at the end of this, but that ticker along the bottom, we're a nonprofit group. So if you could help us out a little bit, help us pay the bills at paypal.me at California Haunts, that would be great. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, Venmo, uh, then type in California Haunts. That would be wonderful. Help me out. Bills are coming up. And uh, like I said, if you like this, share it with five people. If you hated it, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. Also, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. If you're watching from YouTube, click on that little ghost that has the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass. And that'll make you a YouTube subscriber so you know when these videos are going to be coming. Okay? Anyway, I want to thank you guys. And let me get forward here and flip over my little, push my little buttons. And I will see you tomorrow.